Hello and welcome to the Journey Church Podcast, streaming live from Queens, New York. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. Whether you're a member, attend regularly, or this is your first time with us, we want to let you know we appreciate you. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, church. Thank you so much for joining us. No, you're good. Good morning. So glad that you're joining us today. Uh, as Rob mentioned, I mean, that weather has just been absolutely incredible. I feel like it puts everyone in a little bit of a better mood once the weather starts getting a little warmer. We're getting out of the winter time. Has anybody gone to the beach yet? Is there a show of hands? Nobody. It's too, a little too early for the beach. I'm almost ready, though, so I completely feel that. Well, good morning again. I am so glad that you joined us here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bobby. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, that's been here uh, having the chance to be with you on Sundays over the last couple of months. And over the last few weeks, we've jumped into this series called The Beginning, talking about the beginning of the church, the beginning of the Christian church, right? This is the time, uh, the, the time period where Jesus has left earth he has told his disciples, his followers, those who walked with him, experienced life with him, to wait for the Holy Spirit, this gift of God that would be poured out on all mankind. See, previously, the Holy Spirit would rest on someone. They would get power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came upon them. But now, through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the work he did on the cross, and the hope we have when he was risen, we now have the Holy Spirit available to us individually, living within us. Scripture says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer in Jesus, find some joy in that. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God lives in you. And you see, I think sometimes we feel, we get a little discouraged because we don't necessarily feel that, right? We don't necessarily always feel like God is living within us, right? We sometimes see too much of the flesh, our sinful side. We get discouraged with that. Scripture tells us all about that. See, as we talk about, as it talks about in Acts, being a witness of Jesus, a witness for Jesus, we talked about how you can't just be a witness to something that you've heard about, otherwise you're just a storyteller. And so to be a witness of what Jesus is doing, he has to be doing something in your life. And again, I think sometimes we're witnesses not just to the good work that the Lord is doing in us, but sometimes to the, the moments where we fail, the moments where we come short of that, the moments where we look at ourselves and say, I, I don't see God too much living in me. I don't feel like a temple of the Holy Spirit. I feel like we've all been there. I have a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Ian. We were roommates for a while, for a couple of years uh, back in the day, just after college. And um, he is a, a believer. He is a brother in the Lord. He is someone I've, I've learned so much from, I've grown with, I've cried with. He is just somebody I care about so much. But back when we were living together, when we were roommates, we had this, this disagreement going on about the temperature of the inside of the apartment. Anybody in there, any dads in there that are like, don't touch the thermostat. That's mine. You can have the rest of the house. This is mine. Well, that's kind of how I get. Like I, when I'm sleeping, I like it a certain temperature. So we had some disagreements over this. Uh, he liked it hotter. I am a cool sleeper. I need to be cold. I'll bundle up with a blanket, but if I'm sweating, I can't sleep. 
And so he would always, especially when it was colder, just raise the temperature a little bit. Raise it a little bit too much for me to be comfortable. And so one day I was like, okay, I'll get him. And I was leaving the, the house early uh, that, that next morning. So I cranked the heat all the way up, like as high as it went. And then just to add icing on the cake, I put a bunch of pillows outside his door. So when he woke up in a complete sweat and went to turn down the heat, he would fall over the pillows uh, into the hallway. I thought it was great. It worked exactly like I planned. Uh, so it was awesome until I, he turned it back on me. Uh, and you see, sometimes that's where, like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, why did I do that? I don't want this to continue. And, and, and I get to, I'm a baby when I'm sleeping. Don't mess with me. Just my sleep is so precious. So he went the other way and decided one night to open all of my windows and hide behind the blinds. And so I come home from work late one night and I crash into bed and I'm sleeping. And I have the worst night's sleep I'd ever had. I was shivering. I couldn't figure out why. Finally, sometime at like 5 in the morning, I realized the windows were open. I shut them. The next day, I realized what happened. And I was in such a bad mood. I sent out a text to, to those living in the house. Among him, it was a little passive aggressive, but I also just aimed to make him feel so bad. This guy that I love, this guy that I care about, that I've done life with, oh, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of frustration, I just sent out a text that he still feels bad about years later. And there was that moment afterwards where he came and was apologizing, and obviously I'm over it now, and I'm realizing how much of a jerk I was in the morning. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, what was I thinking? Now, the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? I am, God lives within me. I should be better than that. But I found this moment where the flesh had just taken over and had caused me to just act in a way that didn't reflect my heart and my love for a good friend of mine. And I looked to scripture to see what exactly is this? Where, where do I see this listed in scripture? What am I dealing with? And Paul lays it out very well for us, actually, in Romans 17. He says, so the trouble is not with the law of doing things right, for the law is spiritual and good. The trouble is weak with me, uh, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself for what I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. And look how he wraps it up here. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin that is living in me. See, I may have... I, I, I relate to Paul in this moment because Paul isn't a, is attacking sin as an action, but more as an infection. See, we've all been infected with this thing called sin, this evil. Our, our physical nature is attached to the flesh, to the world. And so although I may have loved my friend Ian, my heart reflected that love for him so many times before there was a moment where the flesh took over sin within me prominent and caused me to act in a way that was counter to what I believe counter to what I feel and Paul continues on in, in his letter to the Romans encouraging us how to combat this to keep our mind not on the things of the flesh and of the sinful nature and our anger and our jealousy and our bitterness but rather to allow the spirit to take over. In Romans 8, he says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit 
think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. See, I think as we are, are turning the page in, in this chapter of the book of Acts of the early church, the point we're at, Luke is painting this comparison. See, he's painting this picture of the church at the time, which is now being led by the Holy Spirit. This new movement of God is going where God himself, through the Holy Spirit, is now leading his people. And then he also gives us, as we'll see in a moment, an example of, of a couple who lived in the flesh, lived according to their sinful nature. He's making this comparison of being led by the Spirit versus being led by the flesh. But as we turn the page from chapter 4 over to chapter 5, we see him laying out some details of where the church is at this time. Chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were united in heart and in mind, and they felt that what they owed, what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one of the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. Verse, uh, the passage tells us he sold a field that he owned and he brought the money to the apostles and allowed them to do what they needed with it. See, as, as Luke, the author of this book, is portraying, when we're led by the Holy Spirit, we find these moments where we're growing, where we're generous, where we're unified with other believers. In fact, Luke paints this picture three different times in three consecutive chapters where he's explaining how the church is doing. He's explaining that under this new leadership of the Holy Spirit, there is a freedom, there's a generosity. I think it's important to note that as we hear this description of the church, this isn't a bunch of Christians that are trying really, really hard to be good because they sense something good is happening. This is Christians who have stepped out of the way and said, God, would you lead my life? Through the Holy Spirit, would you guide me? Would you show me? And so God would put on Joseph's heart, hey, so-and-so needs some money. Why don't you sell that field that you've just, just been sitting on? And let the money go to people who need it. Through the Holy Spirit, people are coming alive and realizing this power of God. This isn't people just trying their best to do this. I think it's also important to mention that this isn't necessarily the example, right? We're not trying to say, hey, look at how the early church did it. Now, go cash in your 401ks and your retirement and pull your savings. Come drop it at the pastor of the Journey Church's feet and let's, let's get going. This isn't necessarily how we have to operate, right? This was an example of what the Holy Spirit was doing at the time. Not everybody was selling everything they had and giving the money, but it says when those who were in need did, people were volunteering this money, volunteering their services, volunteering what they had in order to bless others. The Holy Spirit was beginning to move freely. And then we see in chapter 5, the example of the opposite of that, when we're led more 
like the flesh and by the flesh. And so there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They were a married couple. And it's right on the tails of the story of Barnabas selling this land. So some scholars believe maybe they were jealous of Barnabas or they had seen that example. But it tells us that this couple decided they had some land they wanted to sell as well. The only difference is this time they decided we're going to bring most of the money to the apostles, but we're going to tell them that's all the money from the field. We want them to think we got it. We get this. We're sacrificial. But really, they withheld a portion of it for themselves. And you see, this happens, and it says that that Sapphira, Ananias' wife, is, is, is very understanding of this. She understands the plan. And so we see Peter confront Ananias in chapter 5. He says, then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling, the money was also yours to give it away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Keep that in mind as we'll come back to that. Verse 5. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified, as they should be. <laughs> and then the, the passage continues. If you're like, well, this is a bummer of a story, it actually gets worse. Peter comes in a few hours later, Sapphira comes in, his wife. Without knowing what's happened to her husband, and Peter confronts her. Says, is this the, the full amount that you guys sold for the land for? She says, yep, that's the whole amount. And Peter says, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Wow. Thanks for encouraging me this morning, Pastor Bobby. I was coming for a really good message. You're telling me about this couple that just came to church and died. Uh, yes, it is an intense kind of extreme story. But I think it's also important to look at the context of what was happening here. You see, in Scripture, we see usually with the new, uh, with a new movement, a new era, we see these miraculous signs and wonders done by God. Right? When Moses came and and led the people out of Israel, there was a movement, there was a changing of God, there was a freeing of His people, and we saw a massive display of power. When Elijah and Elisha came onto the scenes and ushered in the era of the prophets who would proclaim that Jesus is coming, Elijah and Elisha were known for their miraculous powers. Then we have Jesus come onto the scene with the disciples in this new era of being led by the Holy Spirit. And we see people being healed and raised from the dead. And so in this magnificent display of power, we see this intense story with a magnificent display of power. You see, our sin leads us to death. In this case, it led Ananias and Sapphira to a, a physical, a literal death. But I don't think we should look at this as if the point where God's saying, lie to your pastor and you're going to just get struck dead. Because I don't think that's accurate. And I don't think that's the heart of God that we see here. And so what do we take away from this really intense passage? Well, I think... I think what Luke is trying to paint a picture of is for us to see what happens when we're living and following the flesh. See, what I think is interesting is how this story is told and how Peter refers to Ananias and Sapphira. He doesn't just say, how dare you lie to us? He, 
comes across and addresses the heart of the issue, not the action that sin produced, but rather the infection that sin had in the heart. And he comes to Ananias and says, how dare you even lie to God to sell this land and say it was a different price. And then when Sapphira comes, he accuses her and says, you've conspired with your husband to test the spirit of the Lord. Uh, These are really the only two accounts we see in scripture of a mentioning of lying to God and testing the spirit of God. And I, I find it really interesting because again, the action of lying wasn't necessarily what the author was intending for us to see here and what I think God is wanting us to see through this passage. You see, Ananias and Sapphira wanted something much more than to give some land. They wanted to be seen as holy. They wanted to be seen as righteous, as generous, as people that got it. They were the top of the example of what the church was going to be. They wanted to look like that without putting in the work to be that without coming to God himself, without coming to the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Jesus, would you lead me in how to live my life? Instead, they took matters into their own hands and they decided to do this action, to have this, make this decision that made them or what they thought would make them look so holy to the church and maybe even increase their opportunity of leadership and all of this potential when really... As we see by this passage, it seems like they're believers. They know God. They know God knows what they're doing, which means most likely their heart said, God, I don't I don't care. I I know this is going to work with the people. They're going to believe I'm holy. Yeah, Yeah, I know, you know, you won't do anything. Testing the spirit of God, pushing God, lying to God, really trying in a sense to ignore this God aspect that's happening right here. And I think that's why this becomes such a focal point and why it's, it's such a prominent story mentioned in this short book that has lasted us for thousands of years. Because I think what God is telling us through this is that although sin is equal in God's eyes, sin is the infection, pride may be more damaging than most sin in our lives. Most of the actions that we see in our lives as a result of the sin in our heart are damaging. They draw us away from God. They put us at risk of harm. But I think what we're seeing here is there may not be one more destructive than our pride. You see, our pride is at the heart of sin. Pride is what caused the the archangel Lucifer to fall, and we now know him as Satan. See, what pride is what made Adam and Eve decide that they were going to question God's authority. Yeah, maybe, maybe we do know. We can know more. Maybe, maybe God's not telling us everything. Maybe we deserve a little bit more than this. And pride caused, excuse me, caused them to fall. Pride is what causes us most of the sin in our lives, the things that we would look at our lives and say, I wish that would change. I believe God wants that to change in my life. When we get to the core of it, most of it is pride. Our fear is often driven by pride. And we see in this passage here that Ananias and Sapphira had so much pride in their heart and they had such a desire for others to think of them one way, opposed to caring what God truly knew and thought about them. And it cost them their their lives in this passage. Warren Wearsby, he's uh, an English theologian uh, and scholar, uh, more in our modern time. He explains it like this. 
He said, pride opens the door to every other sin. For once we're more concerned about our reputation over our character, there is no end to the things we will do to make ourselves look good before others. I think it's a powerful quote that if maybe I'm the only one, but kind of strikes me to the heart. That when I look at my sin, I see the sin that leads me into my other sin, right? Which is my pride. You see, I think what we see from this and the word we often grasp with is hypocrite, right? Oh, you, you say you believe that and you're not doing it. And, and hypocrite can be such a heavy word. It can be a word that's thrown around and, and used in a way that can cause a lot of harm. But really the word hypocrite, I think is important to realize here, doesn't necessarily carry with it as much baggage as we might think. It's, it's more of a controllable thing when it comes to our, our faith. Let me explain. The word hypocrite, when you go back into the Greek, actually comes from the word hoopocrity, and, and it actually translates to a pretender or an actor. And so back in the day when the, it, the culture wasn't as inclusive and, and women and minorities weren't necessarily allowed on stage back in Greek times in order to portray different characters, Actors and actresses would have masks that they would hold up in front of their face to portray a different character. And that, that acting, that pretending to be somebody else is where we get the word hypocrite from. See, a lot of times the enemy wants to mess with our mind and people in our lives, especially maybe those who don't understand a walk with Jesus, want to point to our sin and our flaws and say, you're a hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian, but you do that? You call yourself a Christian, but that's how you're acting. That's what you're saying. That's what you believe. But the truth is, church, I want to reinstate something here for us. Having sin in your life doesn't make you a hypocrite. Pretending you don't have sin does. Having sin in your life does not make you a hypocrite. It makes you part of the party. <laughs> we live on earth. We are in our, our physical bodies that will pass away, that are attached to sin and our sinful nature here in this temporary dwelling place. You have sin in your life. It's not used as a judgment or a pointing finger. It's used as an eye-opening moment for us to come before God and recognize that. See, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira's biggest fault in this story was that they lied to the church. I think they're biggest fault and their biggest damaging point was that they tried to lie to God. That they didn't care about enough, they didn't care enough about their relationship with Jesus to come to him with their sin. Instead they just said, no, 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 this is something we want. We're going to just do it. And church, my call today to us is, is to take a step towards God with our sin to shake off this negative connotation that the word hypocrite or sin has brought about in our lives, this judgy, finger-pointing way of thinking about it. And really to embrace it, not to accept it, we ask God to remove sin from our lives. We're not shucking the blame and saying, oh, it's not my fault, but there is a, a power in acknowledging that we can't avoid the sin in our lives, and I don't think God wants us to. But I do think he wants us to take everything we can regarding it and lay it at his feet. And I think he wants us to take it to him and say, God, 
I can't do this. I can't get rid of my sin. I, I can't, I may be able to change some of these actions to look holier. I may be able to act more generous and be kinder. Maybe I'll serve at my church. People will think that I've got it together. Friends, please hear me when I say this. I've worked in churches on staff for over 10 years. You can look holy and not be. You can look like you're doing all right in your walk with God and be falling apart behind closed doors. God doesn't want that. God wants that healing to come through community. He wants that healing to come through an open door that he's now created between yourself and Jesus. Paul, in the same passage that we were talking about, the apostle tells us there's now no more condemnation in Jesus. We now no longer have to be ashamed of our sin and hide it from God or try and figure out how to deal with it before coming to God. But now that we have Jesus and this way has been cleared, we can take our sin to him. We can bring it before him. We can, even in moments, we may be completely embarrassed and ashamed and feel like a complete fraud coming before the holy Lord of the universe. We can take it before him and say, God, this is what I have to offer you today. And that's what God wants because that's where you're at. Because that's your heart. He wants you right now, right where you are, not where you want to be, not what you're pretending to be. And the you you are right now is what he can use. It's a heart of humility. It's a heart that says, I know I, know I have this pride. The more pride I see, the more I, I, the more I see. It just keeps multiplying, but I'm giving it to you. My closing challenge, it's something that I, I, I want to encourage you to do that I can guarantee will take a step closer to God in your relationship with God, that you will be taking a step closer with that. And it's, it's writing a letter to God about your sin, whatever that is. Maybe the sin you just, maybe, but now you're like, hey, I am wanting this relationship with God to grow, and I'm understanding this is something he wants to work through for my good. Maybe it's sin that you acknowledge. You're not hiding before God, but you feel like you're continuously coming back to God. You're wondering when he's going to get sick of it. He doesn't. He doesn't. In that letter, I want you to list some stuff out. I want you to use this as a therapeutic moment of coming before the Lord and saying, God, here's where I am. Here are the things I'm embarrassed and ashamed about. Here's where my mindset is. Here are some of those really negative thoughts that I'm thinking about myself or about my spouse or my kids or my coworker. Here are some of the frustrations, the anger, and here, and use it as a moment to give it to God. And the closing is simply asking God to lead you. God, do what you want with this, but Holy Spirit, begin to lead me. Scripture says if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you that you were led by the Holy Spirit. And all we have to do is shift our focus to him. Sometimes it's hard to not see God in our life, but I've heard it described as breathing. See, we've all been sitting here for about 30, 35, 40 minutes, and you've been breathing the whole time, but you haven't been thinking of breathing. You've been paying attention to what's going on. And now that I've mentioned it, you're thinking about your breathing. You're like, oh, I, I have been breathing, right? That's how the presence of God works. 
It's always there. We don't often pay attention to it. But the moment we stop and we're like, oh yeah, God, you're, you're here. You begin to feel his presence close in. So I, I challenge you this week, take a moment, write this letter to God, do whatever you want with it after. Burn it if you don't want anybody to see it. Throw it away. Store it to look back on it. Make it a prayer of yours that you come back to each and every morning or each and every week. However you want to do that on the other end. But I encourage you, open that communication between you and God. An extra credit is find somebody to share that with. The Bible is very clear that we find a healing when we share our sin and our weakness with those around us. That's how God intended for it to work. See, because when we share, we're shining a light on it. And when we shine a light on it, there's less place for shame to come. We have less shame, less fear, because it's out in the open in the light. So my encouragement, write this letter and then share it with somebody and really begin to open this avenue of communication between you and God. Would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we thank you. God, we thank you for what you've done here today, what you're doing in our hearts, what you're doing in my life personally, God, to prepare and, and to move the way you do. God, we're humbled. And God, as we, we look at scripture and we look at these stories that portray sin and, and some of us may find so much of ourselves in these stories, would you remind us of your grace? Would you remind us of your love and your mercy? that understands that we have this sin infection and isn't asking us to fix it before we come to you, but rather just open that door and bring it to you. I pray, God, for each and every one of us this week, especially for those who take this challenge of writing a letter to you to opening that communication. God, would you work on our hearts this week? Would you, would you move in us if we are asking you for those who are asking for the Holy Spirit to draw near and lead our lives, would you do that? Father, would, you see, would we see your display in our lives the way we see it portrayed in the early church? And God, would you begin to change our mind and as scripture says, allow our mind to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and lead us into a life that is full of peace and joy righteousness.